Topic of our talk today is the Four Noble Truths, or in other words, realization of the Dhamma. And the main points that we'll be talking about is first the Noble Search, and then the benefits that the Buddha boldly stated that can be experienced from the practice and expected to arise from the practice. Then I will briefly deal with the four noble truths and certainly in this context then also speak uh, a bit more about Satna Nibbana and Satna then, time permitting, will take a closer look at Satna, what a stream enter is, and Satna, the qualities of a stream enter. Now, our June retreat Satna began with some explanations on the noble search, Arya Paryesana in the Pali scriptural language. The Majjhima Nikaya, in its first volume, section 163, speaks of this spiritual quest. So the quest for truth, for ultimate truth, um, as a noble search. And it says, what is Satna, this noble search? The answer, given here someone being himself or herself subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeks the unborn supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. Being oneself subject to aging, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, one seeks the unaging supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. Being oneself subject to sickness, having understood the danger in what is subject to sickness, one seeks the unailing supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. Being oneself subject to death, Having understood the danger in what is subject to death, one seeks the deathless supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. Being oneself subject to sorrow, one seeks the sorrowless supreme security from bondage, again Nibbana. And Sapnyadin, being oneself subject to defilement, having understood the danger in what is subject to defilement, one seeks the undefiled supreme security from bondage, namely Nibbana. This is the noble search. And all of us here are engaging in such a noble search. Now it's important that certainly this noble search in the end also leads to and no, to noble results. Noble results certainly in the form of uh, uh, realizing the supramundane Dhamma. Now, 
In the prologue to you know, the Satipatthana you know, Sutta, you know, the Buddha boldly speaks of you know, the seven main benefits of the Satipatthana the meditation practice. And he says you know, the practice of Satipatthana the meditation leads to the purification of beings. In the Pali scriptural language, you know, Satanam Visuddhya. It furthermore you know, leads to you know, the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, you know, to the complete destruction of physical pain and mental distress, the entering of the right Satnir path, and Satnir then finally the attainment of Nibbana. Now, when we just look at Satnir purification of Satnir beings, you know, then from a Retreatance point of Fatna view, a lot of purification is taking place. For one thing, as we are, as we've been observing the eight precepts throughout Satna this month of Fatna June, our bodily as well as our verbal conduct has become much more refined, much more cultivated. It is not as gross and coarse and wild as it might have been prior to the retreat. Now, restraint of the senses also contributes towards this. Now, the mindfulness practice that certainly we are engaged in helps us clearly to purify the mind of mental defilements. And mental defilements come up again and again. And so within this last month, all of us have had ample opportunities to face, to first of all, to recognize the mental defilements as such, and certainly boldly equipped with mindfulness to then face them and certainly to observe them and certainly then to know their nature and overcome them and at least certainly to abandon them on a temporary basis. So this certain activity of for a mindful contemplation of bodily formations, of feelings, of the mind, as well as of Fatna Dhammas, very soon brings certain very positive Fatna results, namely in terms of purification of the mind. And with the mind purified of defilements to at least some extent, there will be an impact on our bodily behavior and our verbal conduct. So those two then will be further purified. Now, apart from what certainly is certainly mentioned in the prologue to the Satipatthana Sutta as main benefits that certainly can be derived from the meditation practice, we have we can state further benefits, namely the arising and strengthening of concentration.
Furthermore, there is certainly the arising and certainly the strengthening of intuitive wisdom or knowledge. And in the course of this Satna June retreat, much headway has been made by our retreat in Satna here. Now, upon gaining a new intuitive understanding in connection with the body and Satna the mind, what happens to our faith? Does faith collapse or does it increase? Well, it increases. And every time a new intuitive understanding or insight knowledge is gained with this, our faith will get a bit stronger. Now, the practice the practice of Fertnet mindfulness, Fertnet meditation, will, in the course of time, lead to the arising of various kinds of happiness. So there's the happiness that arises owing to you know, observing you know, precepts. There's the happiness that arises owing to the fact that we restrain our senses. And then there's certainly the happiness that arises out of, at least temporarily, suppressing or temporarily abandoning mental defilements, in particular the five hindrances. Now, there's also plenty of happiness arising when a retreatant comes to experience the so-called ten imperfections of insight, the vipassana upakilesas in the Pali, the scriptural language. Now, on several other occasions, especially uh, once certain joy and certain then tranquility have arisen, it's quite certain likely that you know, happiness will arise. And this is not a type of happiness that is based on you know, indulgence in you know, some you know, sense pleasures, but rather you know, a happiness that arises out of mental development. Now, we can further state that certain mindfulness, certain practice will lead to an improvement in terms of our energy. We have more energy available. With this, we'll be ready to apply or exert more effort and then furthermore, our equanimity or equanimity will sooner or later come to the foreground. We get a taste of it, we come to appreciate it, and over time it will get stronger and suddenly stronger. Now, other mental states that are likely to arise and likely to greatly improve in the course of the practice are mental states such as patience, such as loving-kindness, gentleness, and so on. Now, with the arising of more and more wholesome mental states, 
suffering that certainly we uh, may have experienced this or degree the degree, degree of suffering this gradually then gets less now the Satipatthana Sutta that we have uh, uh, Covered to some extent during this Satna June retreat under the section of Dhammanupasana Satipatthana. So, a mindful contemplation of Fatna Dhammas speaks of a mindful contemplation of Fatna, the five aggregates, then, sorry, the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense spheres, then the seven awakening factors, and finally the four noble truths. With regard to these four noble truths, the instructions given by the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta are as follows. Namely, one knows as it really is. This is Dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the arising of Dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of fatnat dukkha. So the first noble truth is about satna the existence, the presence of um, unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha, and this satna then can be experienced in various satna forms. Now, briefly stated, the second noble truth speaks of speaks of the origin of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, or suffering. And the third one is about cessation of dukkha. And the fourth one is about the path that leads to the cessation, namely the Eightfold Noble Path. So that's briefly stated. So one knows as it really is, this is Dukkha. What does one know as it really is? Namely, that physical events, major physical events in our life, within one human existence, such as birth, decay, death, these are suffering. Then mental events such as sorrow, lamentation, mental distress, grief and despair are forms of mental suffering. That's, and those basically are connected with the clinging to the five aggregates. Now, 
With regard to the second third noble truth, you know, the Buddha says, one knows as it really is, this is the arising of Fatna Dukkha. This is the origin of Fatna Dukkha. Now, the way you know, this gets suddenly explained is you know, oftentimes as sudden craving. But if we want to be more comprehensive, then we can say, and there are statements for this, the origin lies in ignorance and sudden craving. So craving that suddenly gives rise to fresh rebirth, and suddenly then one takes sudden delight in formations. As for the third noble truth, as the instruction was, one knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha, and this is basically nothing other than the realization of the Dhamma, the attainment of noble path knowledge and by extension noble you know, fruition knowledge. Both noble path knowledge and fruition knowledge will take Nibbana as an object. And with that then comes Satna the cessation of Fatna Dukkha. Now the path that leads to the cessation of Fatna Dukkha is certainly the Eightfold Noble Path, consisting of right view, right thought, as certainly the wisdom group. Then we have certainly the uh, morality group or virtue group, consisting of right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then finally, near the concentration group, consisting of three factors, namely right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Now, when it comes to you know, the first and certainly second noble truth, you know, those two can be understood without having realized supramundane path and fruition knowledge. So, um, as one goes through life, as one you know, meditates intensively or you know, does daily practice at home, the existence of fitness, suffering, or unsatisfactoriness is relatively easy to um, to acknowledge. Now, as one observes certain carefully, one finds that certainly there are certain reasons for the arising of this unsatisfactoriness, and certainly this then lies in you know, ignorance as well as in uh, craving. And this too uh, is certain within the realm of a person who has not yet gained supramundane path and fruition knowledge. However, when it comes to the third noble truth, can one you know, uh, understand suddenly this without having realized certain cessation? Is this possible? 
Hmm? Not. Indeed not. So, it is uh, the experience itself. Once it's taken place, you know, one understands. But before that point, one does not understand. So, cessation of footnote formations. How can this be? So, it's so different from our normal experience. Now, the fourth third noble truth is certainly that of the Eightfold Noble Path, which gives us a certain framework of framework for our spiritual work if we undertake the practice in this framework and certainly we purify our ethical conduct, we engage in actions that are wholesome and certainly we do work that is not bringing any harm to others. So with this already some transformation takes place. If we then on top of this undertake the work of mental development, then effort, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration are likely to arise. And if we do all of this based in right thought, namely thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-greed and thoughts of non-cruelty, then seven important, those, these seven noble path factors will sooner or later lead to the arising of right view. And right view is nothing other than uh, the understanding of the four noble truths, but including the third and fourth noble truth. Now, a person who has had a realization experience, or let's say a breakthrough experience, just to use a different term, will have understood what is meant by cessation of formations and will also, in retrospection, understand or, or um, understand much better why this training along the lines of the Eightfold Noble Path eventually leads to the realization of the Dhamma. So at that point, things really start to make sense. Prior to this, it's not so obvious. <coughs> now, when superficially going over the Four Noble Truths, then you know, the impression might arise, there's mention of Dukkha all the time. This is Dukkha, this is the arising of Dukkha, this is the cessation of Dukkha, this is the way leading to Dukkha. Now, would this justify to say yeah, that certainly the essence of Buddhist teachings is rather pessimistic? Uh, it's not. And the reason is very simple, because the first two noble truths simply state, yes, indeed, Dukkha exists. And Satna then further state the reasons or the origin for this unnecessary suffering or unsatisfactoriness. 
the third and fourth noble truth are you know, the opposite of you know, dukkha, so the cessation of uh, formations, you know, the Buddha clearly states in you know, a particular you know, passage from you know, the 56th Satna Samyutta, the realization of the Dhamma, the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, is accompanied only by happiness and joy. What for? The Noble Truth of Phutna, you know, suffering, the Noble Truth of the Origin of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Cessation of Suffering, and certainly the Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Cessation of Phutna Suffering. So to say that Satna, the essence of Phutna, the Buddha's teachings, are rather pessimistic is not certainly quite right. Now, Venerable Analaya, in his certain book, Satipatthana, has explained that a distinction should be drawn between the term suffering and unsatisfactoriness. Namely, from the point of view of an unawakened person, having to deal with formations is a form of or will be an experience of suffering. However, for a person who's abandoned, who's cut off all mental defilements, this is not the case anymore. Formations are just formations. What remains is the unsatisfactoriness of formations owing you know, to you know, their impermanence and also the unsatisfactoriness of formations owing to the fact that you know, they are quite different in comparison to you know, the experience of Nibbana. So this distinction between suffering and unsatisfactoriness does certainly make or is certainly useful. Now, it is with regard to the first noble truth that this has to be fully understood. So um, the existence of suffering or unsatisfactoriness needs to be fully understood. And then as for the second noble truth, this needs to be abandoned, namely the craving as well as the delusion and suddenly then, in terms of the third noble truth, we need to realize it for ourselves. So without realization, we will not understand what this is all about. And suddenly then, in terms of the fourth noble truth, this needs to be developed by direct knowledge. Now, as alluded to already earlier on, the experience, the breakthrough experience, 
involves what is known as supramundane path knowledge and supramundane you know, fruition knowledge or path con- noble you know, supramundane you know, path consciousness as well as you know, fruition consciousness. Both of these take Nibbana as an object. Now, what then is Nibbana? In addition to what was Satna mentioned during the talk yesterday, we can say that Satna Nibbana is a state that is not accessible by just mere logical thinking, nor is it accessible by writing books about Satna Nibbana. Now, To those who have experienced Nibbana, it does exist. But to those who have not experienced it yet, it does not exist. So that's an important aspect to keep in mind. The fact that one has not experienced it, does it certainly then allow for the conclusion that it doesn't exist? It has not allowed for this conclusion. Nibbana is one of the four ultimate truths, namely the last one. The first one being materiality, the second one being consciousness, the third one being the mental factors. Now, the text, the Abhidhamma, has defined Nibbana by saying that its characteristic is peace. And indeed, a person who's had a direct taste of Nibbana will affirm to this. So, this is a peace that does not arise uh, out of uh, just being in a very you know, quiet and certain uh, tranquil uh, location, but it arises uh, owing you know, to the fact you know, of uh, the cessation of formations. Now, interesting is that Satnibana's manifestation is given as signlessness. Why signlessness? Can you say... There's no sense input. Could you say that Nibbana is red in color? And uh, could you say Nibbana is round or rectangular? Or that it's certainly uh, maybe uh, that uh, there's a mass to it. Nope. So these ordinary, our ordinary ways of describing, of describing you know, the world, simply these ordinary concepts of Fatna describing the world, in the case of Nibbana, they just don't holds uh, or just don't have any meaning. And so the experience of Nibbana is really different from uh, anything that certainly we are used to uh, in terms of conditioned experiences. Now, the 
well-known you know, definition of third Nibbana as certainly given in the Samyutta Nikaya, namely its sub-38 third collection, Discourse 1, you know, simply states destruction of greed, destruction of ill will, destruction of delusion, this is called Nibbana. And certainly the Sarata Pakasini, so a commentary, uh, explains further, it, is, it says, it is Nibbana that is called the cessation of the six sense bases. For in Nibbana, the eye with which we see, the ear, you know, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, sees and perceptions of forms, of sounds, of you know, smells, of tastes, of tactile formations, or tactile experiences, and mental experiences fade away. So that at least gives you gives you some idea what Sata Nibbana is about. Now, especially in the context of Sata Nibbana, it is important that as meditators we try not to form any concept about it. If we start doing this, then we'll hold some picture of it or some idea of Nibbana in our mind. And then this shapes our thinking and our way of practice. And when in fact the actual experience is quite different. And since the experience of Nibbana is so different from what we know normally, under normal circumstances, no, so it's really best not to form any big concepts and simply just to let it be as something to be experienced later on. Now, Nibbana has been referred to, has been described as a state that is eternal, duva, in the Pani scripture language, also as desirable, suba, as well as happy, namely sukha. Now, as explained already yesterday, that happiness arises, or that happiness is a type of non-sensate happiness that does not depend on the sense impressions. So it's the very absence of fitness sense impressions that is so peaceful. Now, can, can we say that Nibbana is the same as nothingness? Would that be correct to say? No. It's not certain that either. Could we say that Nibbana is non-existent? No. We can not, not, not say that either. Now, could we say that the you know, four primary elements, the four great elements of earth element and water element, wind element, fire element, that these four elements exist in Nibbana or not? They exist? Not okay, and then can we say that nibbana? There's mass, compactness, mass to it. It has a certain weight, weighing maybe one ton, or just half a ton. Could we say that? 
we cannot say that either. So, Nibbana is quite certainly different from our normal experiences. There's no location to it. There's also no arising. There's no going there. There's no, or there's no going on, and there's no dissolution. The state of Nibbana just is. So one needs to do one's practice and purify the mind, bring about conditions so that the mind then can attune itself to the experience of Nibbana. Now, a person who, for the first time ever in uh, the human existence, has gained this state of, or has had uh, such a spiritual breakthrough experience, is certainly then referred to, uh, at least in Theravada Buddhist teachings, as a stream enter, a so-called sotapanna in the Pali scriptural language. And so, such a person, or in such a person, certain things will just change. Namely, such a person has abandoned wrong views as well as doubt, and certainly has escaped uh, rebirth, or has escaped from rebirth in unhappy states. And certainly then, as a gist, will be reborn at the most certainly seven more times. Now, to be a bit more explicit about this, a stream enter is a person who has entered the stream that leads irreversibly to Nibbana, namely the Noble Eightfold Path. And with this experience, certain fetters, so things that bind us to existence, that bind us to samsara, the cycle of birth and satna death, certain fetters get cut off, eradicated from the mind once and forever. And those fetters are the fetter of the wrongful belief in the existence of a self, Sakaya Deity, in the Pani scriptural language. And then, secondly, the fetter of skeptical doubt, Wichikicha, and finally, another wrong view, namely the view in believing that practicing rites and rituals will lead to realization of the Dhamma. In terms of footnet mental factors that get uprooted from the stream of consciousness, well, there are 
two of those, namely two forms of view, so it's just the mental factor of view, and certainly then a skeptical doubt. And both of these are, relatively speaking, the coarsest fetters and therefore most easy to uproot. But if you think of an arahant, someone who has become a holy one, in him or her much more subtle mental defilements or fetters or mental defilements such as pride in certain conceits, such as sloth in certain torpor, such as ignorance will be uprooted once and forever. So a stream enter will not be able to achieve what an arahant can do. Now, the Samyutanikai as well as certainly the commentary state that two more mental defilements will be cut off, namely avarice and certain envy. Which then means there's no more stinginess and certainly no more jealousy. And in terms of our, you know, in terms of observing precepts, major a major change can be expected. Now, the cutting off of the mental defilement of skeptical doubt has certain consequences, has certain implications. What are, what might certain of those be? Doesn't practice becomes a lot easier? Yes? Ah, so you practice wholeheartedly. Why do you practice wholeheartedly? Ah, because you've gained unshakable faith in what? In the Dharma, is that all? Hmm? The Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so, the unshakable faith then is not only in the Dhamma, but also in the Buddha and the Sangha. And one just realizes in a very experiential way that certainly these teachings are liberation teachings and one certainly one has gained act or better in direct understanding of the Dhamma, then the step to have unshakable faith in the Buddha also becomes much easier, as well as then having unshakable faith in the Sangha, especially of noble ones, those who've realized Satna the Dhamma in the past and Satna who have realized it in the present, as well as Satna those who will realize it in the future. Now, this is an important 
development in one's practice. Someone who has not gained this, has not suddenly realized the path of noble path of stream entry, his or her faith may still be somewhat shaky. And suddenly then, in the presence of, uh, let's say, members of some different faith or some different philosophical approach, then his or her views might still change. But for one who's realized the Dhamma, there's just no more doubt there. And even if you're offered a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars to convert, will you do it? Probably not. So we can say that major change takes place in terms of one's faith, that it becomes unshakable, and a major change also takes place in the sense of our virtues, because our virtues, as certain of the Buddha states, our virtues become dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unmottled, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. The commentary to the Samyutta Nikaya says the Saratapakasini says that a noble that noble ones do not violate the five precepts. And so even when they pass on to a new existence. So even if one when one gets reborn, then this work that has been done, namely to purify the precepts, that that work and the results of it will remain in for the next existence. Now, there's a further aspect. That that has been briefly mentioned. So, an ordinary person who has not yet gained the Dhamma, his or her destiny after the passing away, after the end of this present human existence, may or may not be assured. So, it could one could end up regaining birth, rebirth in a favorable existence, but it could also happen that one might end up in an unfavorable existence depending on one's certain actions and the ethical quality of one's actions. So, there's no assurance there. However, the Realization of the path of stream entry changes all of this, and there is an assurance that Satna one's destiny will lead to a final realization of the Dhamma to Arahanship. Now, the the spiritual breakthrough experience has yet another impact. Namely, will a stream enterer still 
perform acts that otherwise could lead to a state of loss, such as hurting a Buddha or taking the life of one's father, one's mother, and the like. It's possible or not? It's no longer possible. So, which means that this realization of the Dhamma, realization of the path of stream entry, also brings about a weakening of all the remaining mental defilements to an extent that one just cannot perform any activity anymore that otherwise would lead to a transgression that uh, would then uh, lead to rebirth, being or reborn in a state of loss. So that's a major major benefit that certainly goes along with this realization of the Dhamma. Now the texts further speak of generosity and that's a result of the overcoming of stinginess. So I'm good the Samyutta Nikaya in its 55th collection, Discourse of 32, says, Again, a noble disciple dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighted in giving and sharing. This is the fourth stream of Married. Now there's something in connection with uh, with this, or this in connection with unshakable faith. Now there's some other uh, aspects certainly that are important, namely. One has conviction, one is virtuous. One is not eager for protective charms and ceremonies and trusts kamma and not protective charms and ceremonies. So one trusts certainly that wholesome deeds will lead to wholesome results and unwholesome deeds will lead to unwholesome uh, results. One does not search for recipients of one's offerings or acts of generosity outside of the Sangha and gives offerings here first. So this uh, this last point, or with regard to this last point, there's a connection between faith and generosity. Now, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita has certainly mentioned in the past in one of his Dhamma talks, and I'm still lacking the exact reference, that a stream enter, so a person who has gained the path of stream entrance will know whether another person has entered the stream or not. And that's, that is just because one has you know, a personal experience of it and then you know, when relating to another person, you know, then 
that one can tell at least to some extent whether he or she has suddenly gained the Dhamma or not. Now, furthermore, a stream entrant will be a person who is totally committed to the Dhamma and intensely interested in listening to the true Dhamma. And such a person understands Dhamma that is profound and not easily grasped by others. When hearing a discourse on the Dhamma, one will be filled with joy and sudden rapture. Now, the heart of a stream entrant is inclined to Dhamma, but this does not mean that one then starts being oblivious to one's social responsibilities. So one does not shirk one's worldly responsibilities. Whatever needs to be done, one does. And certainly oftentimes one does so in a more uh, or in a thorough and certain uh, wholehearted uh, manner. Now, as you can uh, tell from uh, the points certain uh, that have been mentioned so far in this certain uh, discourse, there are plenty, plenty of benefits to be gained from you know, practicing the Dhamma, practicing this you know, uh, Satipatthana meditation, mindful contemplation of the body of feelings, you know, the mind and Satna Dhammas. Now, the question is, once Satna we've done an intensive retreat and Satna we then go back home, what do we do next? How do we proceed with our meditation practice in the future? Now, the main point really is that what? You just take your practice and you put it somewhere into a closet and you forget about it? It's not this. You keep up your practice. You try to take the mindfulness meditation with you. You try to do some regular daily practice. And something on top of this, you're trying to integrate mindfulness into your daily activities, whatever those daily activities might be. Now, obviously, your mindfulness is going, it's not going to be superb, not as, as good, as sharp, as strong as during an intensive retreat, but at least, sorry, if you manage to maintain a certain degree of mindfulness, you're mindful of what you're doing, you're mindful of what you're saying, and you're mindful of your most prominent thoughts and mental states, then that's certainly good enough. Now, outside of retreat, at times you might not know, okay, which instructions should I follow? There's no teacher around. Just hold on to one thing, namely Mahasi Saira's maxim. Starting with the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, 
trying to label, observe, and know whatever prominent object comes up in the body and in the mind. So, even if some experience comes up that seems pretty unusual, and you really don't know what to do with it, just stick to that maxim. Just be mindful of it. Label it, be mindful of it, and know its nature, and suddenly things will be okay. So for daily practice, you want to give up your precepts? (laughs) Obviously not. So you want to observe at least the five precepts, and these things will help to streamline your life. They will help to simplify things, and you'll have a wonderful ethical standard to go by. And if ever some situation arises where you don't quite know what to do, then just see what the precepts are saying. And if there's no clear answer there, then simply, if you plan to do something before actually doing or acting, put yourself yourselves into the shoes of the other person that might certainly be affected, and then ask whether you would like whether you would like it if your life is taken, or whether you would like it if your possessions were taken, and so on and so forth. And then the answer will be very obvious. Now, many things could be said about mindfulness in daily life. Some of these things I've mentioned during previous certain retreats, and many of you have heard this before, so there's no need to repeat this. Important seems to be to be creative in terms of integrating your mindfulness into your daily life. And so you will know your life conditions best, and then just try whenever possible to include some mindfulness, especially at times when you're under stress, or you're extremely restless, or things are just not going right. Now, fortunately, these certain days, mindfulness has become a buzzword in society. After how many years or how many decades of spreading mindfulness practice in the West? So many decades. if I remember correctly, Venerable Masi Sayadaw visited the Insight Meditation Society in 1979. So that's quite some time ago. Now, there's a great and increasing number of applications for mindfulness. So mindfulness during intensive retreat, mindfulness during our daily practice, mindfulness integrated into our daily lives, and then in the context of conflict resolution or conflict transformation, important is 
mindfulness during speaking because so often it is by not pausing and not being mindful of what we're going to say next that we say you know, things that you know, then will uh, harm and hurt another person. And in no time you've got a big conflict there. So mindful speaking is certainly essential as well as attentive and emphatic listening. So when you listen, it's not just some superficial listening, but you want to listen with a mind full of compassion. You want to feel the other person, what is going on in him or her. And just these two alone, mindful speaking and attentive listening, emphatic listening, will already be great contributions to the resolution of a conflict or the transformation of a conflict. When your perceived enemy realizes that you're really listening, you're really paying attention, and that you're really respecting her or him, then the person will feel already a bit more understood and certainly might be willing to open up a bit more. Now, Many of you, or some of you, will be aware of mindfulness being taught to young adults in the course, in the context of teen retreats and Buddhist young adults courses. And for instance, here at IMS, these courses take place. Uh, every year, and certainly they uh, seem to be extremely popular, both among uh, the parents and uh, the youngsters who are attending. Now, mindfulness is uh, apparently um, more and more finding its ways into schools, into education. So mindfulness in teaching is there as well as mindfulness in learning. And this too can or hopefully will in the long run bring about certain major positive changes. Now there's certain mindfulness as certain part of stress reduction programs that is being offered for people who suffer from chronic illnesses or the same thing also mindfulness-based stress reduction being offered in hospitals on occasion as a preparation for surgery. And then you know, there's certain mindfulness you know, being taught certain to uh, inmates in you know, prisons and uh, you know, some law professionals in this you know, very country you know, here in the United States have you know, taken a pertinent mindfulness practice you know, for you know, themselves. And 
It is not that disputes always need to be, this only can be settled in court. The courts oftentimes are overloaded with cases and thus a resolution of disputes outside of the court system through negotiation, through mindful uh, mindfully going over you new know, things has become an, an, another important alternative. Now, tomorrow some of you, you know, will be driving you know, back home, others might be flying back home. When driving you know, back home, you, know, you want to make sure, especially you know, when your mindfulness is super you know, good and uh, your wisdom also fu- you know, fully you know, developed, you know, that uh, you drive carefully. Uh, otherwise, uh, <laughs> the journey might end right uh, there. And so, you know, then... A point that has just a really practical point that has emerged a few years back from a retreat in Australia is as follows. Namely, one of the retreatants, there he's already an elderly man over 70, and the length of the duration of the retreat was just one month. And so he figured, well, one month is a relatively short period of time. So now I better get in shape before the retreat starts. And so maybe two, three weeks ahead of that one month retreat, he would increase his hours of mindfulness practice at home daily mindfulness practice at home. So increase to maybe you know, three, four uh, hours. By the time the retreat started and the first interview took place, this man's practice was had already taken off. And while well, everyone else was still dealing with the hindrances. And so, and so that seemed like uh, uh, a very... Uh, positive approach and uh, you might certainly consider this for the future before attending some retreat. However, I do realize that before the next retreat comes up, there's so much to do, so many preparational activities, that then one ends up having less time. So that then is a bit unfortunate. Now, in a book that has been published not too long ago, by the title of The Buddha's Brain, by Rick Hansen and Richard Menus, some very good points are there, namely supports for everyday mindfulness. So I'm quoting from that book. <coughs> namely, try wherever possible to slow down. Obviously, when you cross a heavy or a road with heavy traffic in downtown Boston or New York, you don't want to apply this particular recommendation. But at home or in your garden or on other occasions, it will serve you. Then, next point is straight to the point. 
or it's certainly very straightforward, talk less. So, talk less, there's so many occasions when we engage in a lot of gossiping, and certainly, so, you know, we could certainly then cut back you know, on this. Now, life you know, these days has oftentimes become you know, uh, a life of multitasking. So, you know, we have the computer in front of us, so we have to deal you know, with uh, uh, various requests, you know, emails, you know, and the like. Then the phone is ringing, then someone is coming into the office, and certainly you know, maybe we're still trying to read something else. So, doing all these certain you know, things certain more or less at once you know, is certain, can be quite certain, a challenge. So, to reduce you know, this multitasking as much as possible. And then, when you know, doing one's daily activities, to focus on one act, sorry, you know, to focus one's attention on one's breath as one you know, does these various activities. That too helps you know, to you know, stay you know, grounded, to stay you know, um, in the present moment. Now, sometimes when being with others, especially strangers, we might not necessarily always feel at ease. And it is at such or under such circumstances that you know, um, you know, the two authors you know, recommend you know, to uh, relax into a feeling of calm presence with others. So. If you feel you know, that certain you're a bit uncomfortable with another person, just be mindful of that certain you know, discomfort there. Or you know, if you know, there's maybe you know, some contraction in the abdomen, just be mindful of that. And certainly, eventually, you know, those sub phenomena will subside, and certainly you'll be in a much more you know, relaxed person way with the other person. Now, in the course of a day, you might uh, take certain you know, certain activities or events like uh, the ringing of a telephone or you know, maybe you know, the ringing of a bell and certain you know, similar you know, things as reminders you know, to be mindful again. And then for some of us, certain life may be pretty complicated, and there's so many things that we need to do, and so many things to take care of. That at least a few of those we can weed out. So, if we have the habit of footnote reading, let's say, two newspapers a day, plus a weekly magazine, plus a monthly magazine, plus the news on the internet, then you might consider maybe weeding out one or two, at least one or two of those activities. And the result will be that you'll have more time to be uh, to practice mindfulness. Now, this then more or less brings us to the end of this talk. Allow me to express my deepest gratitude to, um, first of all, the Buddha, 
then uh, my immediate certain teacher, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhivamsa Burma, as well as Masi Sadhu, and other people in the lineage. And then deep gratitude to the Insight Meditation Society for the opportunity here to teach all of you. And uh, gratitude to all those many who have made uh, this uh, retreat uh, possible. All the many people here at the uh, Forest Refuge, at uh, the Retreat Center, uh, at uh, the Barry Center for Buddhist uh, Studies. And uh, gratitude uh, to all of you. Uh, the retreat is here. It's been uh, really inspiring to see all of you practice with uh, in a wholehearted manner with full uh, conviction and certainly uh, the results certainly uh, are there so um, allow me to uh, conclude may the practice of fitness satipatthana meditation as outlined outlined by uh, the buddha may it lead to a realization of Fatna the Supramundane Dhamma, at least the realization of Fatna the path of stream entry within this Satna very life. And Satna, this is it for now. Now, let's do. Uh, the following, namely, you know, to share the merits that have accrued something from you know, this retreat um, with all you know, beings, and we silently you know, do this for maybe uh, two, three, you know, two, three minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.